Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. March 3 of 1877 was witness to an event not seen before in the history of our country and not seen since. Because March 3 of 1877 was a day in which the United States appears to have had two presidents. It came at the end of a very contentious presidential election season. Not that we would know anything about such things. Came to the end of that season pitting Democrat Samuel J. Tilden against Republican Rutherford B. Hayes. By the end of the election, because of some contested votes in the South, electoral college votes, neither candidate had reached sufficient number of electoral college votes to be elected. And so the electoral college had to do some work. Well, it took them a period of time to sort through the realities that they were facing and to be able to come to a conclusion. By the conclusion, it was March the 2nd. The swearing-in, the oath of office, the inaugural address, all was slated to take place on March the 4th, which would be a Sunday. That seemed awfully tight. On March the 2nd, the Electoral College gave the election to Rutherford B. Hayes. And because there was a great deal of concern about what would happen at the swearing-in and at the inaugural address, a change was decided upon. They were going to move it back to Monday, one day later. That would give them a bit more time. It would move it away from Sunday. But they also decided to have a private swearing-in ceremony in the Red Room of the White House on March the 3rd, a Saturday. And so that's what they did. Rutherford B. Hayes was sworn in as the 19th President of the United States. Here's where the problem came in. General Ulysses S. Grant, 18th President of the United States, was still sitting president until the next day, until Sunday, March the 4th. Now Hayes had been sworn in on Saturday, March the 3rd. And so for a 24-hour period, it appears that the United States had two presidents. Not a great deal was made of it at the time, although since then much more has been made of it by asking questions like, what if there had been some major catastrophe? What if there had been need for the president to respond or to decide on a certain matter? To whom would they have turned? President Grant? President Hayes? Because everybody was agreed on one thing, and that was this. You can't have two presidents at the same time. As it turns out, the same thing is true of prime ministers and kings. Even Burger King knows that. That's why about two years ago, when they were starting their franchise in the country of Belgium, they started up an ad campaign that they thought would help them. They took a cartoonized version of King Philip of Belgium, and then they showed the fictional version of Burger King. 
And their ad campaign was built on the premise, which one is the real king? They were calling upon potential customers. You vote. You go online. And online it said, two crowns, two people, only one can reign. Which one will it be? Well, it appears that the royal family of Belgium didn't take too well to the question and made it known. So Burger King apparently backed off a little bit. But on one thing they agreed. You can't have two kings at the same time. And it's with those words ringing in our ears that we begin a new series. A series entitled simply, The Final Week. It is our purpose in the coming weeks to walk through the final week of Jesus. That last week before his crucifixion, we'll walk a bit past it, but we will move all the way up to Easter as we take this journey through the final week. Now, I have to tell you right at the outset that there is scholarly debate and there are scholarly differences regarding precisely what took place on what day in some cases. That's much more true toward the beginning of the week than it is to the end of the week. By the time you get to Thursday, Friday, Sabbath, Sunday, etc., there's much more consensus. But just know, there are some things that we can't know with utter certainty. But what we do know is this. The gospel writers placed a great deal of emphasis on the final week of Jesus' life. On those final days, those final hours, they turned their eye to that out of proportion to the time they spend with the rest of his life. In most cases, if you take the biography of a great person and you look at the biography, you will discover that the time of that person's life will be told in the final paragraphs or pages or a chapter or two. It is relegated to the very end, and it doesn't take up all of the attention. The attention is much more on the bulk of that person's public life and what they accomplished. Not so in the Gospels. The Gospels have a much more clear focus on the final week. Consider this. Matthew's Gospel is 28 chapters long. By chapter 21, we're already into the final week. Mark's gospel, 16 chapters long. By chapter 11, we're into the final week. Luke, a bit different, 24 chapters long. By chapter 19, we're into the final week. But look at John. John's gospel, 21 chapters long. And by chapter 12, we're into the final week. And by chapter 13, we're into the final night of the life of Jesus. There's no question there's a focus on this period of time in his life, keen interest in what happened and in what it meant. And so we're going to take it a day at a time, trying to trace the footsteps of Jesus, trying to understand the events, listen to the teaching, and ask what it means for us. So that first day, Sunday. It appears that that weekend was a rather quiet weekend in the life of Jesus. It seems that he had made his way toward Jerusalem, no doubt for the Passover feast, but that he had stayed maybe at the home of friends, possibly at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but we know that he had stayed at Bethany. Bethany was a little hamlet, maybe two miles from Jerusalem. Apparently a quiet Sabbath. But with Sunday, everything will change. 
Tension is building. It's rising in the city of Jerusalem. It is a time of year when pilgrims, not by the thousands or tens of thousands, but by the hundreds of thousands, poured into the city of Jerusalem until it was gorged and could not contain them any longer. Nationalism, patriotism would have been at a fever pitch. After all, this was Passover. This was their 4th of July celebration. This was the time that marked their exodus from Egypt, their freedom from slavery, their establishment as a people. And so to look around them and to see the Roman guard, the Roman cohort surrounding them, marching them, watching with menacing eyes, ready to squash any potential rebellion, must have been difficult in the extreme. We all know that the larger a crowd gets, the more uncontrollable it can become. Listen to the words of one New Testament scholar in underlining the size and the feel of Jerusalem at that time. He writes, it was the Passover time, and Jerusalem and the whole surrounding neighborhood were crowded with pilgrims. Thirty years later, a Roman governor was to take a census of the lamb slain in Jerusalem for the Passover and find that the number was not far off, 250,000. It was the Passover regulation that there must be a party of a minimum of 10 for each lamb, which means that at that Passover time, meant more than 2.5 million people had crowded their way into Jerusalem. The law was that every adult male Jew who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem must come to the Passover. But not only the Jews of Palestine, Jews from every corner of the world made their way to the greatest of their national festivals. Jesus could not have chosen a more dramatic moment. It was into a city surging with people keyed up with religious expectations that he came. Tension. Expectation, messianic hopes, all a boiling cauldron in the ancient city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is about to do something very out of character. He's about to officially enter the city of Jerusalem. He's entered the city, exited the city many times before, no doubt. In fact, this very week there will be times when he will move into and out of the city, but this time will be different than all others. This time he will make an official entry that is the subject of every conversation, the focus of every look. This time there will be an official entry that will lead to what will happen in just a few days, and that's an official exit. If he enters on a wave, he is driven out on a rail. If he enters to shouts and acclamation and hosannas, he will exit to cries of derision of people mocking and scoffing and beating him. The choice he makes today will set in motion events that no one will be able to stop. Because you see, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem as king. We call it the triumphal entry. Those words don't appear in Scripture, but they're an apt description of what happens. 
So let's read it. Matthew's Gospel, the 21st chapter. Matthew will be our base of operations during this series. So we go to Matthew chapter 21. Here's what Matthew records. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed behind shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is very out of character for Jesus. He has spent much of his ministry up to this point in time trying to quell and push down and contain any messianic fervor. He feeds 5,000 people, and he consents at a miracle like that with their bellies full, with their needs satisfied. They are then turning their eyes to him as the object of all their hopes. He consents it as sweeping through the crowd. So immediately he dismisses the crowd, says, go home. He takes his disciples, get in a boat, go to the other side. He disperses them all. He's trying to quell any messianic fervor. He has to have time to get the message out. There are other occasions when he tries to keep it quiet. Impossible to do. In fact, so much is that true in Mark's gospel. It happens elsewhere. But in Mark's gospel in particular, the scholars have come to call it the messianic secret. Jesus performs a mighty work changing somebody's life. They can speak. They can walk. They can see. They know that God has forgiven them. He changes their life, and they are exultant. And he says to them, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone. And they're like, don't tell anyone. I'm going to tell everyone. What are you talking about? And that's exactly what they go out and do, as a result of which the crowds continue to grow, to become more intense, to have more eager expectations, causing the religious establishment increasing ire, causing Caesar's Rome to look more carefully at this movement. Jesus realizes My life could be crushed, could be snuffed out before I have had the opportunity to fully proclaim the kingdom of God. They won't be stopped. But now, 
everything changes. Now he sets in motion certain events which will guarantee that every eye sees him, that everyone understands his claims, and he does so full well knowing where this path will lead. Now there are two ways you can read the text. When it says things like, Jesus said, go to the city gate, you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt, untie it, bring it, they'll ask you, that kind of thing. Or when he says later in the week, go get ready for the, for the Passover meal, you'll see a man carrying a water jar, ask him, he'll direct you to your room, it's fully set up. When those things happen, there are two ways to read that. One way, some read it, I read it that way in growing up, was that it was a manifestation of the omniscience of Jesus. His divinity was flashing through his humanity. He was telling them what would happen before it did. That's one way to read the text. I don't read it that way any longer. Rather, what's happening, I would vigorously contend, is that Jesus changing his focus, has now gone to work to prepare what will come next. In fact, listen to these words taken from the SDA Bible Commentary. It says, Whereas in the past Jesus has taken every precaution against any popular demonstration acknowledging him as the Messiah, he now not only encourages this very thing, but takes the initiative in bringing it about. To be sure, the disciples and many of the people no doubt expected Jesus to set up his kingdom at this Paschal season. Any surprise the disciples may have experienced arose from the fact that Jesus now apparently reversed his former attitude toward publicity. This changed attitude must have filled the disciples with unwarranted enthusiasm and hope. They failed to understand the true significance of the event until after the resurrection. Jesus intentionally changes. Before it has been, keep it quiet. Now it is, I'm going to make certain every eye sees. And so he goes to work. Could it have been something like this? Late Sabbath afternoon in Bethany, pulling a follower off to the side. You have a donkey? I do, Master. Does it have a foal? Yes, I do. May I use it? Oh, at your service, absolutely. I'll be happy. You want me to get it right? No, 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 no. I don't need it right now. I need it tomorrow. Well, yes. Where do you want me to meet you? No, no. This needs to be between us. Here's what I'd like you to do. You know that alcove right by the city gate? The only one I'm talking about when you go in there on the left? Yes. Tie your donkey and its colt there and wait. 
Somebody will come to untie. Well, I know, Master, the city's filled with people. Who knows who will walk off with my... No, 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 no. You, you can stop anyone who wants to take it until they tell you what I'm going to say. What's that? For the one who comes in who begins to untie it, and you say, why are you untying the donkey? And that person says to you, the Lord needs it. That's the one I have sent. Okay. But why do you need it? Well, I'm going to ride it into Jerusalem. And the man's eyes grow wide. Because just that morning at the synagogue, when the scroll was unrolled, they had read from the prophet Zechariah those messianic words. Sing Hosanna, daughter of Zion. Shout hallelujah, daughter of Jerusalem, because your king comes to you riding on a donkey, having salvation in humility, riding on the foal of a donkey. And the man has goosebumps. He says, you are? Oh, yes, Master, please. And he's thinking, the Messiah, my donkey, shh, tomorrow. Jesus is intentionally crafting things in a direction that will lead to Calvary. Think of these words. These words from the pen of Ellen White, Desire of Ages, very simple statement. Referring to this triumphal entry, she writes, Never before in his earthly life had Jesus permitted such a demonstration. He clearly foresaw the result. It would bring him to the cross. He is setting in motion a chain of events from which there is no return. And it arrives. You read it. He sits astride that donkey. They understood what that meant. If a king was going forth to battle, he rode a horse. If a king was coming in peace, he rode a donkey. Jesus is making a statement, a messianic statement. I am king, and I am coming to you as the king of peace. It takes very little time in such a cauldron of activity and expectation for people to catch the implications. You read Matthew's words. They begin to tear down the palm branches, throw their garments in his road, road and begin to cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic sentiment. John is maybe the most direct of all when he says, Blessed is the King of Israel. It's undoubted what's happening here. He is being proclaimed King, but there is a problem. You can't have two kings at the same time. So you have the religious establishment that immediately stands in opposition. What are they crying out? How dare you let them say that to you? 
And you have the Roman cohort, the Roman guard, with their fever rising. We have to squash this. And Jesus knowing, by the end of the week, someone is going to die. Because you can't have two prime ministers, two presidents, two kings. So what does that mean to us? 2,000 years later, a world removed, a traveling teacher sitting astride, a humble donkey. What does that mean to us? What does it have to do with us? Could it be, could it be that there are moments when Jesus rides triumphantly into our lives? Moments when we welcome his entry in excitement with joy and celebration. When Jesus comes declaring forgiveness, when he comes announcing salvation, when he comes extending peace, when he comes saying all the past that can be gone, dead, buried in the baptismal waters, you're now free. And we celebrate. Hosanna. You know those moments, those experiences. It happens at a Christian concert, at an inspiring worship service, at an especially meaningful, quiet time with Jesus in the early morning. Maybe it comes from a stirring sermon. Maybe it comes from moving music. Maybe it comes from touching teaching. And we shout, Hosanna. But then Jesus says, I am here not only to be Savior, but to be Lord. And for me to be Lord means that I must be enthroned and self must be dethroned. Because you can't have King Jesus and King Self live side by side. The preacher and writer John Ortberg writes this. When it was time to take our first child home from the hospital, we put her in the car seat in the back of the car and I got in the front seat to drive. She was so small even the baby seat was too big. She looked so fragile to me that I drove home on the freeway going 35 miles per hour with the hazard lights flashing the whole time. <laughs> that first day, when your kid is in the car with you, is a scary day. You want to know what the next really scary day is with your kid in the car? It's when they turn 16 and you're handing over the keys. Now they're moving from the passenger seat, from the ride-along seat, into the driver's seat. That's a scary moment. It's a big moment in your life when you hand someone else the keys. Up till now, you can say, I've been driving. I choose the destination. I choose the route. I choose the speed. You're in the drive-along seat. But if we change seats, if you're going to drive, I have to trust you. 
It's all about control. Whoever is in this seat behind the wheel is the person in control. A lot of people, says Ortberg, find Jesus handy to have in the car as long as he's in the ride-along seat because something may come up that may require his services. Jesus, I have a health problem. I need some help. I want you in the car, but I'm not, not sure I want you driving. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. If he's driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. If I put him in control, then it's no longer a matter of giving some money now and then when I'm feeling generous or when more of it is coming into my life. Now it's his wallet. And that's scary. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition. No, it's his agenda. It's his life. Now I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip, flatter, cajole, deceive, rage, intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate. I get out of the driver's seat and hand the keys over to him. I'm fully engaged. In fact, I'm more alive than I've been ever before, but it's not my life anymore. It's his life. I want to be Savior, says Jesus, but I also want to be Lord. I don't know how it is at your home, in your shoes, in your life, but I can tell you how it is in mine. It is such a blessed relief to know that I can be covered by the grace of Jesus, that he extends it to me fully and freely. I'm so thankful for that. That causes me to celebrate, to shout, Hosanna in the highest. Hallelujah. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But then when he says, your ego needs to step down. Your agenda needs to be released. You need to choose to allow me to guide. That's a battle. I can understand why. When Jesus comes in as Lord, the clock is ticking. Both these two kings can't reign at once. Somebody will give by the end of the week there will be death to one or to the other. It's just wonderful to celebrate his salvation. But it's so threatening to celebrate his lordship. And yet that's what happens the first day of the final week. Jesus makes a decision, takes an action, chooses a trajectory that will not end until a king is dead. Sound like your life? It certainly sounds like mine. Emily Post, the writer on etiquette from a previous generation, received a question. Somebody wrote, wrote to Post with a question I'll never ask. Wrote to Post with the question. 
If one receives an invitation to dine, have dinner at the White House, what does one do about a previous engagement? <laughs> Post wrote a response in which she said, an invitation to dinner at the White House is a command. All other commitments disappear. That's Jesus. I'm inviting you to dinner, he says, to dine with the king. But Jesus, I want, I, I like, I'm planning... It's an invitation to come and to sit down with the king of kings and the one who wishes to be king of your life. So what about it? At the end of the day, one will still be standing. King self or King Jesus? The choice is ours. God of grace, we will never stop praising you for the gift of salvation, for the forgiveness of sin, for the experience of grace. Lord, we need the courage to move out of the driver's seat, to relinquish the keys, and to celebrate your lordship. Give us that courage to consistently make that choice. In the name of Jesus, amen.